Hello honeys, I'm so very sorry that we are already dropping our first business on a Wednesday instead of a Tuesday as promised. Unfortunately, I had a technological failure. Alas, when I hit upload, it did not upload. So again, sorry about that delay, but I will be extra super sure to watch out for that sort of issue in the future. And anyways, here is the first episode of Business. Hope you enjoy. Hey honeys, it's wonderful to talk to you all again. It's great to be here on this lovely Tuesday launching our first ever episode of The Business. It's going to be basically a 10 minute-ish recap of all the major news from the week before that I think is worth paying attention to that's coming out of the arts world that you know draws uh, draws an eye to exhibitions of note or changes our understanding of how the world works. For example, this episode is dropping on Tuesday, February 13th, so we will be talking about headline events from February 4th through the 10th. And let's go ahead and get started because we had a great um, variety and amount of news come up and some really awesome things to talk about. Let's dive in. Probably our most exciting piece of news is that a stolen Van Gogh has been returned and is set to go on view next month. The work in question is called Parsonage Garden at Noonan in Spring. It was completed in 1884. The work was taken in what was described as a, quote, dramatic late-night smash-and-grab, end quote, by the local news from the Singer Laren Museum up in the Netherlands in pretty much four years prior now, March 30th of 2020. The actual thief, nicknamed Nils M. by the Dutch media, and the alleged mastermind had already been arrested and sentenced to prison for this or other crimes. That uh, mastermind, for example, was an Amersfoort transport engineer and also a large-scale cocaine smuggler by the name of Peter Roy Kay. The circumstances of the painting's return to Dutch museums is a little odd, anonymous, and even sort of funny. Art detective Arthur Brand, well known for recovering other Picasso objects and an Oscar Wilde ring at one point, was set onto the case and quickly understood that the criminal underground holders were likely passing this work around because no one would have wanted to fence or sell it. With a value of 3.5 to 6.5 million US dollars, this painting was much more trouble than it was worth and that could have been the reason for the work's return. In any case, Brand is credited with the retrieval, but not necessarily of the sleuthing out of the work. News reports state that Brand had a prearranged cops notified meeting wherein the work was transferred back to him. He got a knock on his door one night. An unknown man gave him one of those big blue Ikea bags that designers were trying to copy and sell for like $1,000 for a little while there, and just gets in his car, speeds off. Brand goes back inside his house, opens the bag to find the work wrapped up in bubble wrap, 
and then does comparisons with his colleagues to confirm that this is in fact stolen Picasso and not a replica. They definitely make that uh, confirmation. I saw in one article that Roy K. supposedly also assisted in these negotiations for the return with his various crime contacts. I did not find that uh, repeated in any other sources, however, so that's, that's questionable. Unfortunately, not as much care was taken of the work throughout this entire process as was given to it with the bubble wrapping in the bag. The painting now has a deep white scratch going through all the layers, varnish, paint, etc., across the bottom of the canvas, and that puts that damage in the extreme category. So the work went in for cleaning and restoration and is set to go back on view March 27th, but depending on how, how long it takes to repair that damage, that date could be pushed. The Association of African American Museums also released a statement last week warning of particularly high risk to black historical sites, saying, quote, the black cultural centers with older infrastructures, such as those built to preserve historical sites, often located along coastlines, lack necessary resources and funding, end quote. Some of the risks that they cite include harm to collections related to or caused by natural disasters in years past and the increasing risk of damage and loss due to global climate change. Last week was also a big one for archaeology as several new discoveries have set various factions of that community abuzz. The Rochester Institute of Technology near Buffalo, New York received a surprise last week when it was donated Two Renaissance-era manuscripts, both of which held pretty great surprises, but one of which appears to be a palimpsest, which is a work written over the top of a previous one, and that former has been partially or entirely erased. Why this is cool slash why does it matter? That's because vellum, aka the fine parchment made from animal skin used in this text, was really expensive in the Renaissance, so it was often recycled in a sense to save money. That means that it's highly likely that older texts lie beneath the current version of the pages, perhaps a 15th century work. This means that the students at the school will get the opportunity to use imaging science to make real discoveries, which is not only, you know, great for their resume, but just pretty darn cool, and also will get the chance to examine changes in textiles across time, methods of removing or blurring ink in the Renaissance, and so on. Several discoveries coming out of Poland specifically in the last week, including a medieval royal kitchen, which was discovered in the basement of the existing Museum of Applied Arts in Poznan. And I just want to know who surveyed that place last and how did they miss this? In any case, archaeologists from the Adam Mikowicz University, which is within the same city, recently decided to explore and document the basement of the administration building and found this kitchen, which is dated to the 14th or 15th centuries. It's a 10 foot by 16 foot room, and based on the construction timeline of the royal castle in Poznan, which is currently the house of the museum, this kitchen was kind of advanced. They found a gothic pillar of 9 feet by 11 feet, which in its day would have had a hood above the kitchen stove in order to filter exhaust gases. 
they also found remains of a well in a different corner. Additionally, an extremely rare golden ring was found beneath one of the four residential towers of the Wowell Royal Castle in Krakow. The site of this castle, within a larger medieval architectural complex, is one of the most socio-culturally and historically significant in Poland, if not the most. The cathedral dates to about 1000 CE and once served as the site of coronation and of burials for Polish royals. There was also a surprising amount of Eiffel Tower-related news came, that came out last week. Who'd have thought? Frenchman Richard Plowd faced quite a scare last week when he found out that his matchstick Eiffel Tower, which took eight years to piece together and comprised 706,900 matches, might be disqualified from winning the Guinness World Record. Though his 23.6-foot recreation of the monument beat the previous record by a full two feet, the potential disqualification hinged on the type of matches that he used. Guinness said that to qualify, one must use commercially available matchsticks, which cannot be, quote, cut, disassembled, or distorted beyond recognition, end quote. And as the NBC reports, quote, having grown tired of buying matches from the supermarket and manually removing the sulfur heads of each one, Plowd struck a deal with a manufacturer to sell 33-pound boxes of headless matches to him, end quote. But that may have been Plowd's downfall. Guinness at first denied him the record, but then saw the internet raging and thought on the situation a bit more, came back, said they changed their mind, and considered their previous decision too strict. So, Plowd is now the record holder. Last week, the Paris Olympic Organizing Committee also revealed their design for the medals. For the upcoming Games and Paralympics, all medals will be inlaid with a hexagonal chunk of the iconic Eiffel Tower's iron. The use of parts of an iconic architectural structure in the medals is a first in all of Olympic history. It was made possible by a partnership between the Eiffel Tower Operating Company and the Paris Olympic Organizing Committee. Though they may have gotten their inspiration from the Beijing Games, as those medals were inlaid with jade discs. Of course, fans of the structure will probably want to know how and why this is possible. The tower is 330 meters, aka 1,083 feet tall, made up of over 18,000 iron parts. It was built in 1889 for the World's Fair as a temporary structure intended to last about 20 years. And because of that, it's made of expensive materials that are very hard to care for. It takes a lot of work to keep the tower up and running. Over the years, as girders and other bits have been swapped out for new ones during restoration, these pieces have been kept for safekeeping. And so each of the two, about two-thirds of an ounce pieces of iron cut into the winner's metals will be coming from these uh, leftover pieces, you could say. Once the paint has been stripped, the iron's polished, and the iron is varnished, they will be inlaid and stamped with the game's year and logo. Also, little thing that I learned while researching for this episode of course, the Olympics and the Paralympics have different logos, but the one for the Paralympics is called the Agitos. That name is related to its three swooshes. 
the inlays are hexagonal because France apparently thinks that that's the shape that their country is. Local jewelry house Chaumet designed the medals with recycled metals. Notably, the Paris organizers did not publicly assign a monetary value to these metals, but they are manufacturing 5,084 of them, about 2,600 for the Olympics and about 2,400 for the Paralympics, in order to have extras for various museums, reassignment of medals based on cheating, and so on. All right, honeys, those were our headlines from last week, and I hope you learned a little something. Hope you found some interesting things to pay attention to going forward. Next week, I will be talking about this week's news, and I promise eventually that will make sense. But in the meantime, I will let you go just to keep this as short and sweet as I promised. Have a wonderful week, honeys.